Good morning. We are continuing, as Doug has already mentioned, uh, a lot of this, the songs and the theme of this morning's worship are reminding us of our sermon theme, which is the Exodus and the life of Moses. And this morning it's going to be a little bit different in that the reading and what we're talking about aren't exactly the same thing because the reading would have to be about four different chapters, 7 through 10. We're looking at the plagues this morning. So just a reminder where we've been. Israel's in slavery in Egypt. Moses is born and miraculously saved by God. Rescued, grows up in the house of Pharaoh. Then decides to go out and take care of his people and kills an Egyptian. And it doesn't make the Hebrews happy or the Egyptians happy. So he flees to Midian where he lives. And 40 years, finds his wife and has children and thinks that's kind of how it's going to go. And then God shows up in the burning bush. And we spent two sermons there looking at both who God is, but also Moses' reaction and really not wanting any part of this mission of God, where I think a lot of us can relate. And here we are finally seeing Moses almost behind the scenes. We don't really get to see much of him uh, in in the passages because what we see is God versus Pharaoh, the plagues. And how many of you have heard of the plagues? This is something some of you have heard of. There are ten different plagues. We'll look at the first nine this morning. But the scripture we're going to read is Exodus 7, verses 8 to 13. And this is actually, some scholars consider it the first plague, the snake. But more than more scholars would say it's actually kind of a prologue of what happens through the other nine, uh, following it, the other ten. So if you will look at verse or chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, we will have a short reading that highlights the rest of the passages that we'll be talking about. And I know you all are riveted. More sadness, more difficulty, the plagues. Here we go. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning with this ancient story that we believe has very much present day application in your son. And I pray that we would, uh, that your spirit would be present and our eyes would be open to how you are our one true God. In your name we pray. Amen. So, um, I don't like to start sermons on sad notes. We had a big tra- we had a tragedy this week, right, in Oregon. And there's this question mark of why do these things keep happening? And not just shootings, but, but anytime there's a disaster, I think it's the common question. Why is this happening? And there's often a, a question you'll hear uttered by many, many people, and that is where was God when this was going on? And it's a fair question. I remember after 9-11, that question came up over and over. And, and yet the, the question itself really assumes something by the one asking the question. It assumes 
that other than during this disaster, at all other times, God's doing his job, right? And all of a sudden, he quit doing his job. What happened? Why did he quit? But what we forget is, if he's always doing his job, how are we relating to him in those times? And are the people asking that question constantly walking with God and worshiping God, or is it just an opportunity to blame God for things that we see in the sin of our world? Now, when we come to the plagues, unlike some of these other disasters, God tells us why he did them. I want to be clear. When a natural disaster happens or when a shooting happens or something horrible, Christians are unwise to immediately go and say, here's what God was doing. Because God, only in certain instances in the, in the Bible do we know behind the scenes what's going on. But what we can be sure of is that God is in control. God is sovereign. And what he is after, whether this event or just in general in our lives and through these plagues, he's after our treating him, calling him Lord, coming to him in worship as the one true God. And that's what we're going to see these plagues point to. He is the one true God, and therefore we would be wise to worship him, to call him Lord, to allow him to rule and reign in our lives. And that's what he's doing in these plagues. And there are three things we're going to see. One, he's Lord because he's the one true God. Secondly, he's Lord because he's the God over everything. And thirdly, we should make him Lord because he saves. He is a saving God. So let's look at those one by one with the plagues as our backdrop. He is the one true God. And our, it's our tendency, I think, and this is the point of number one that we're gonna, I'm going to try to prove, that many of us in this room will say we follow Jesus. But oftentimes allow other gods to grab our attention to where Jesus becomes sort of relegated to the one of the many gods we follow. It's a big statement, but we'll, we'll go that direction. In our passage, what we see with Pharaoh is Pharaoh is challenging Yahweh. And it's really interesting in the plagues, it really is sort of this head-to-head competition between the God of the universe versus the gods of Egypt sort of spearheaded through and by Pharaoh. And in some ways, Pharaoh is like a type of Satan. He's a real person. We believe he really existed and walked and breathed. But he also really did represent Satan, sort of opposing God. And what he does is in this passage we're looking at, which you see throughout all the plagues, is he looks at Moses and Aaron and says, prove it. Prove it. And if you go back to chapter 5, we talked about this last week, where they failed, where where the miracles didn't happen and where Pharaoh did not let the people go. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Who is the Lord? think that's a question a lot of us ask. We ask, who is the Lord? And so the plagues are God saying, I'll show you who the Lord is, right? And so what, what happens in this story and in many of the plagues is Moses and Aaron perform the, the thing, and then what does Pharaoh do? He says, watch this, and he calls up his magicians, his secret priests, right? They show up, and they do the same thing, right? It's interesting because when you think about it, at times, I've heard people say, I, how did they do the same trick? Well, if you study the plagues, there's, there's ten, this doesn't count, right? The, same, the snake thing we're looking at is sort of the prologue. It's not an actual plague. There are ten plagues ending with the Passover. That's the next sermon. Yay. One through nine 
or what we're looking at today, and only the first two can the magicians replicate. That's important, right? What's the first one? The water turning to blood. Now, you could spend a lot of time going, how did they replicate it? If, if Moses and Aaron turned all the water into blood, where was the, what water was left for them to show they could do it? And, and most scholars are not trying to argue they didn't really do the tricks, but I do. I kind of go, ah, they couldn't have really done the tricks, you know? So I don't know. I don't know the answer, but there couldn't have been a whole lot of water left for them to turn to blood, right? Maybe like a cup left in Pharaoh's house. I don't know. But I do know this. In verse 19 of chapter 8, when they can't turn the gnats, you know, the dirt into gnats, third plague, in verse 19 they finally say, this is the finger of God. <laughs> they, they confess. This is God. I can't do it anymore. What's important about that? Well, remember in James, you say you believe in one God, big deal. Even the demons believe in one God and they shudder. Why do I say that? We're going sadder. Doug, we're going to continue this sad, sad theme. Uh, we are idolaters. And oftentimes we find comfort in the fact that we say, I believe in the one true God with our mouth. But with our lifestyle, with our hearts, we really do worship an entire plethora of gods. So why all these plagues? Why did God not just show up and say, I will show you I'm God, and I will wipe you all out, and we'll get the Israelites out and we'll move on. Why does he do that? Why does he take his time through all these plagues? We see it in chapter 9, verse 16, where he says, For this purpose I have raised you up, he's talking to Pharaoh, that, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So the reasons for the plagues, God will be known. And that reminds us of a passage in Acts. Paul is uh, going before um, the Areopagus. Many of you are familiar with this passage. And it's full of, of uh, Stoics and Epicurean philosophers worshiping any and every idol god they could think of. And what does Paul do? He says, ah, today I will talk about this one god you have called the unknown god. Right? And he picks it up and he says, I want to talk to you about this unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, belong, being Lord in heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. And he goes on to explain that the offspring of God ought not to think that they are God is a divine being. And, he's, and, he gives, and he starts to share the gospel, right? And he says, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world, the one true God, he has appointed a man and of this he has given assurance to all, raising him from the dead. And he's pointing to Christ. So Paul is saying, what is this one true God you worship? It is, it is Jesus. They didn't believe it at first, right? But then they, they repent. They hear the gospel. And the question is, this morning as we look at these plagues, and we see all of these crazy things that we're going to look at in a moment, Pharaoh is watching miracle after miracle, and he's saying, I still don't believe, and his heart is hardening. Right? And I guess the question is, is your heart doing the same thing? 
in your life, in your daily life, you're going about your business, as problems arise, as fears come in, as successes happen, is God whom you rejoice in, is God whom you cry out to, is he the one true God of your life? Or are you, and me, and I know I'm guilty of this all the time, looking to other things to bring the satisfaction and the answers that we need for our daily life? There's a quote. It's often helpful to read the quote on the front. Sometimes I give it a lot of thought. St. John of the Cross says this, The soul of the covetous is far removed from God as far as his memory, understanding, and will are concerned. In other words, the person who's coveting's memory, understanding, and will are often far from God. He forgets God as though he were not his God, owing to the fact that he has fashioned for himself a God of mammon, which is another word for money, and of temporal possessions. And so, here's the point. God, the Lord, is the one true God, and he wants us to follow him, not just so he has some sort of sick, grand, uh, audience, but because that's the way you and I are made. And point two is going to point to this. What we're going to see as we move into the fact he's the Lord over all of nature is it's like these plagues. He's saying, I want to rescue you from the, from the stuff you're turning to instead of me. I want to bring you out of the mess. So let's look at point two. He's the Lord of all of creation. He In this passage, in this these ten, or ten, this morning, nine plagues, we have to do a little bit of an overview. How do you cover all these plagues in one sermon, right? Is there, can, who can stand up and name the plagues, right? We had to do this in ordination. Shane, can you do this? Just kidding. No, I'm, I'm telling you. No, 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 I'm telling you. Number one, the Nile, water to blood, okay? Number two, frogs, right? All of a sudden, that plague ends, and that's important. Each plague has an ending. And then all these frogs come pouring out Number three, gnats. That's the one that the, I don't know why, but the magicians couldn't make a gnat. I'd be like, yeah, I made that one right there. That, that was mine. What, are you going to tag it? Uh, they didn't do that. Flies were next. Livestock dying. Boils on humans and everything else. Hailstones. Locusts. Darkness was number nine. And that's the last one we'll look at this morning, and then we'll see in the Passover the death of the firstborn. And each of these plagues have a few things going on. Uh, again, the first two are the only ones the magicians could do. Okay? The third one, gnats, and then the hail, which is nine, seven. They are, the magicians actually beg Pharaoh, like, wake up, this is real. Okay. Pharaoh himself begs eventually after the frogs, after the flies, and eventually after hail, locusts, and darkness. He even starts to say, okay, take the people and go. And if you read through those chapters, you'll see he doesn't ever say it fully, like take everybody. It starts off with just take the adults, then eventually, uh, you know, you can go a little ways, don't take the livestock. And so even though he capitulates, he's not quite sure he wants to let everyone go. And then with almost with every plague, there's, a, there's an aspect of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And the first one, there's three ways his heart is depicted as being hardened. Initially, he hardens his heart. Okay? But then there are times where his heart becomes hardened. And it's really, the, the, the way it's written, it's really saying it almost in a passive sense. And then in four of the plagues, God is said to have hardened his heart. So, I'm going to do a quick aside on the hardening of hearts. 
and it really does dovetail nicely into this point, and that is this. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, it is critical we affirm that God is sovereign. It's very dangerous to ever say, well, he had no control over that. Yet, it's also important we don't ascribe motive or background information where he doesn't give it. So, I would argue that even when Pharaoh's hardening his own heart, God's obviously sovereign. Right? You never have, well, God didn't do it there, Pharaoh didn't do it there. It's, it's, it's a mystery, and, and there's an interlinking we can't comprehend. But it is important we know two things. One, God never hardened Pharaoh's heart where Pharaoh's also not complicit in his own hardening. And two, Pharaoh never hardened his heart where God wasn't sovereign. Okay? Because in all of these plagues and in even the control of Pharaoh, God is demonstrating to that audience and to us and the future audiences, I can take that God, Pharaoh was a God to the Egyptians, and I can own him, and I do own him. He is not his own. And so what you find is these plagues demonstrate the fact that we go around thinking when things are going well, we're the ones that did it, right? Yogi Berra's famous quote, we're born on third base thinking we hit a triple. We, we go through life going, look at me, look what I did. You know, never mind that my dad was seven foot two and I, you know, uh, my mom 400 pounds. Look at me, I'm built, I can play football. Not me personally, I was a football player. By the way, someone asked me if I played o football for OU yesterday at Brom. So I was like, yeah, like who? You know, I was hoping for some really amazing football player. Anyway, let's, we'll talk about that another time. So Pharaoh, that's all we're going to talk about, Pharaoh's hardening of hearts. We can talk about privately. But what do these plagues point to? Scholars agree that what God is showing in the plagues is a reversal of Genesis 1 and 2. God created everything from nothing. And here is Pharaoh thinking he's the guy. And he's in the three of these plagues, he's in the Nile. Why in the morning is he in the Nile? Worshiping the Nile God. Thanking the Nile God. Uh, one of the gods they worshipped was a, had a frog head, a, a goddess. So most scholars would say, that, so when God raises these frogs, he's like, I'm the god of frogs, not your goddess. But they're all really pointing to how creation is being reversed in darkness. And it's backing up. Right? And so when the Nile becomes filled with blood, the frogs come out. When the frogs come out, you have a lot of flies that aren't getting eaten. And scholars have begun to see the way God is showing how his control being removed leads to plague after plague after plague and a reversal of creation. And that's important because I think, and I remember in seminary when the doctrine of providence really hit me, we miss this a lot in our American culture. But you and I forget that every breath we take, God's creation is being acted out in providence. He is in it. Sometimes I remember that being hugely encouraging about my brother who does not walk with Christ because I realized even then the fact that he's alive is a gift and there's hope. So that's an aside. But the point is, is that God is showing I am in charge of everything that you think you worship, I'm in control. And it's really, going back to that initial question we talked about, why these plagues? Why are these things happening? It's not so much that God's doing these to the Egyptians in some sense, of course he is, but it's really that he's letting, he's letting go. He's saying, you want a world without me? Here's what it looks like. Does that remind you of any, any scripture? Romans 1. Right? 
where God says in verse 28 through Paul, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manners of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness, and malice. So sin running rampant in the form of these plagues, the creation revolting is a picture of God's sovereignty, right? But it's Him showing that He is in control and backing off to say this is what the fruit of sin is. It disintegrates. It, it runs wild. It runs rampant. And what we find is even we are modern people and we want connections to everything, but the reality is we'll never grasp through science, we'll never understand how God is completely in control. And when we have problems and concerns and issues in our lives, so often we turn to specific methods of answering those problems and we don't turn to God. And the scriptures are clear. Run to me. doesn't mean you don't do other things, but you initially and primarily worship him and recognize he is the one in control. And whenever we begin to take his law and see it as burdensome, the, young, the students are going through Psalm 19. Uh, they're memorizing it right now. And, and one of the reasons is we need to remember the law is beautiful, reviving the soul. That when we follow the Lord, our lives actually are enriched. Right? Uh, if you follow, I don't know if anyone, I don't ever post on Facebook, but I did post this article this week. And that's not for any real reason. I've just been really bad at it. So don't go, wow, Ryan doesn't think you should post on Facebook. You're welcome to post on Facebook. I read your post. I just don't do it very often. Check this. This is a New York Times article. Stop Googling. Let's talk. Read this. It's a good one. It's on my, you can follow me. Or not follow. You don't follow on Facebook. You friend. See? That's why I don't post. College students tell me, the author says, they know how to look someone in the eye and type on their phones at the same time. Their split attention undetected. They say it's a skill they mastered in middle school when they wanted to text in class without getting caught. Now they use it when they want to be both with their friends and, as some put it, elsewhere. Okay? These days we feel less a need to hide the fact that we are dividing our attention. And apparently there was a study that said 89% of cell phone owners said they had used their phones during the last, the last social gathering they attended. So the very last thing they were at socially, they were using their phone. I think that's a pretty good number. Um, I really love texting this out during our dinner the other night. It was a great thing. She says, when college students explain to me how dividing their attention plays out in the dining hall, some refer to a rule of three. In a conversation about five or six people at dinner, you have to check that three people are paying attention, heads are up, before you give yourself permission to look down at your phone. So the conversation proceeds, but with a different, different people with their heads up, Right? I looked at all the college students going, oh, we've been busted. They're like, three? I thought it was two. Ah. Young people spoke to me enthusiastically about the good things that flow from life lived by the rule of three, which you can follow not only during meals, but all the time. First of all, there is magic, the, the magic of always being available elsewhere. You can put your attention wherever and where, wherever you want it to be. You can always be heard. You never have to be bored. That's the young people. But listen to this 15-year-old person. She said, um, she said she hated when she went to dinner with her dad, and he would always Google facts. So adults, where I do that. Let me look that one up real quick. You know, Google that, interrupt the conversation. 
Or the 15-year-old boy that told her he wanted someday to raise a family not the way his parents are raising him, with phones out during meals and in the park and during school sporting events. But here's what got me. But the way his parents think they are raising him. Did you hear that? He doesn't want to raise his kids the way they are raising him, with phones out all the time, but the way they think they're raising him, which would be with no phones at meals and plentiful family conversations. Why did that get to me? Because A, the parents know it's not good to have our phones out during a meal time, for example. I'm not trying to cast a whole bunch of new laws, by the way. This is an illustration. But what the parents thought was a good idea, they completely broke, right? And here's this kid who's like, why are they breaking that rule? What, how are they breaking it? They're letting him be on his phone during mealtimes and at the park and whenever. But he thinks this is wrong, and when I'm older, I'm going to raise my kids the way they think they're raising me. What's it show? Our hearts are hardened. Right? We know that's not healthy. We know things are bad for us. We know that there's disintegration in the way we live our lives, but our hearts don't care. Right? So in so many ways, we really do emulate. The plagues are technicolor. The plagues are huge. The plagues are excessive to show that when you allow the Lord to slip away from being your Lord, this disintegration will seep in. Right? It will happen. And it happens in many other ways, in relationships, where we don't ask for forgiveness, where we don't forgive other people. Right? Um, diet and exercise. How many? I mean... The number one epidemic in America, obesity. We all know how that happens, right? Um, there's just so many more. I can t- I could, you could come visit with me. I would tell you 82 things I'm doing wrong. If I did that better, life would go better. But I do it. And these aren't even sinful things in and of themselves. But the reality is, what this, these plagues are showing us is that life, is made to be lived in the way God has intended it for flourishing and richness. And so he's not only the one true God, but he's the God over everything. Finally, and most importantly this morning, we'll see he's the God who also saves. We have all these laws, pardon the paper shuffling, and yet we don't know what to do, and yet God is gracious. Even in this act of plaguing the Egyptians, he finds salvation. Where? Again, it's interesting, he didn't just wipe them away, right? He goes one by one by one. And with every plague, what happens? Pharaoh cries out. Moses and Aaron cry out to God, and God relents and stops the the actual plague. Also, salvation appears in this passage in the fact that for Israel, they didn't suffer the plagues. It was noted specifically starting with the flies then the livestock and the boils on on the way to the end. They didn't suffer the plagues, only the Egyptians. Wow, that sounds harsh. It isn't harsh. Because when you get to chapter 9, God's about to bring hail, and you know what he does? He tells them. Guess what I'm about to do? I'm going to send hailstone, and it's going to kill every beast in your field. And it's a fascinating thing. If you turn to chapter 9, verse 20, it says, Then... Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock in the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. 
God warned them. God had already done eight other plagues. And now he's warning them about a nine, or excuse me, seven other plagues. Now he's warning them about an eight. I think that's the right order. Maybe, no, sorry. I'm off on my numbers. Anyway, they had plenty of warning. And they didn't do anything about it, right? Why? There's something about our hearts being hardened, that God is a saving God. There's even this interesting verse for those that didn't care. No one noticed. It says the hail came along and it even destroyed their crops. It destroyed all their food. But in verse 30, 31 says, the flax and the barley were struck down for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. And in verse 32, but the wheat and the emmer, which is another type of wheat, were not struck down for they are late in coming up. God even left the food for the Egyptians. What's his goal? Redemption, right? Okay. Remember, we read Acts 17, and we saw how Paul was saying, I'm going to talk to you about the unknown God. And he talks about how he's in the form of Jesus. What does Jesus do? If I were to ask even the most elementary person, tell me about Jesus' life on earth, what would you say? Miracles, right? But he didn't ever perform miracles like the Egyptians' magicians. He didn't do, he didn't do like little cup tricks. He always reversed the plagues. He always healed. He always helped people who were suffering from the fall. The wedding at Cana, you might say, ah, oh, that was a neat trick. Water or water to wine. But even that was pointing to the blood. He would eventually have to spill the wine. Everything he did was his way of saying, I am the Redeemer. And I have come to save. I have come to reverse the plagues that you and I live with and suffer with all the time. Is that your hope? Jesus. But there's even more. In the ninth plague, we see something interesting. Going back to this concept of reversing the creation is darkness came, right? And remember where in Genesis it starts in the darkness. Right? Everything was dark. And God said, let there be light. So when you get to the ninth plague, you really have in a way reversed creation and said, this is what it comes to without a Savior. And in Matthew 27.45, Jesus is on the cross. And Matthew tells us, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And what we find is very clearly that Jesus became the one who took all the plagues. He took all the wrath in what's called propitiation. And he became the one bearing the entire weight of all the world. Right? He takes these plagues on so that we might have life and freedom and hope and movement. Is that your view this morning? Have you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, is that your view of Jesus? If you're here and you're not a Christian, sometimes it's because you just can't believe the truth of the statements of the Bible, but often it's because he doesn't look beautiful to you. And I want to proclaim that he is beautiful. That he would take away your sin. He would take away your plague. He would take it on himself that you may have newness of life. And for those of us, and I think most of us here would say, no, we're Christians. That's not who we are. We believe in Jesus. We believe he's the Son of God. We've received Him into our hearts. We walk with Him. But isn't it true 
that we so often treat him like just another idol in the pantry. I mean, what, how do you respond the moment you get bad news? What I often do is I think, how can I fix this? What steps can I take? I ruminate on all the ways I'm going to fix my problem. Do you do that? With anxiety and fear. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And I hear that and I go, ah, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of trusting you that much. Right? Have you given him everything? A couple of specific applications. Relationships. If there's a person that you have not forgiven, okay, you are disintegrating because your anger and your bitterness is defiling you. You think if you forgive them, it's too easy. But the person that's dying is you. And Jesus says, I'm the judge. I'll take the sin. You can forgive. Even if that person has no idea, even if that person would never say they're sorry, or if, even if nothing this side of heaven could ever reverse the harm and the pain they've done, I'm the one that took the pain. You can forgive. You can have freedom again. Right? If you struggle with addiction, if you struggle with sin, any of any kind that you're just, it's something you're hiding. You're going after that thing, that substance, that, that, that behavior, because you don't fully believe God is enough in Christ. And Jesus is saying, I am enough. You can cast that on me. Don't tarry until you're better. Don't wait around until you've licked it, figured it out, and then come to me. Come now. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Come to Jesus as one in sin. Right? Do you struggle with fear? Do you, just, do you struggle with success? Things are going great. Jesus is very small. Again, what did you want? He wants you to come to him and say, you are my Savior, you are Yahweh, you are the Lord of my life. So what's the practical application in all these things? Repentance, returning, coming. Coming not as one who is worthy, not as one who, um, like Pharaoh, just wants the problems removed, and then the second they're gone, you go back to what you were doing, but coming as one who says, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life, of the universe, and I give you everything. Make me a new creation. Make, teach me to walk in you by your Spirit. 